Our Father, we come to you this morning asking you to illumine your word to us, to do great and wondrous things as we consider the soon coming of Christ. Lord, we pray with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, you've given us such great hope through Scripture to know precisely what is coming, to have hope that is not blind, but hope that is outlined and delineated and listed. Great, tremendous hope. I pray that this is an encouragement to our hearts this day, which you have said in your word concerning the coming of your Son. May you be honored and glorified as we honor the word of God and listen and apply it to our lives. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we'll go where we went last week to Genesis 1. We're getting this train kind of started very slowly here. Last Lord's Day morning, we began our voyage together in our new series, Millennium. After this morning, this will become our Sunday evening series. I just wanted to kind of get it kicked off for a couple of Sunday mornings, but beginning next week, we'll be in the evenings. We're going to continue spending several messages just getting our feet wet in what we're calling Introducing the Millennium. And while you're finding Genesis 1, which will just be kind of our, our home base for this morning, listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up, which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself stand forever. This verse in Daniel 2 is speaking of God's coming kingdom. And what is clear from Scripture is that this eternal kingdom, this future kingdom, has two distinct phases to it. The millennial reign of Christ for 1,000 years, phase one. The eternal state, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, phase two. And so the question might be asked, why two phases? Or why is a millennial kingdom necessary? Why is it necessary? Well, before I try to answer that question, I committed to you in the previous message that I'm going to make certain we don't just engage in theological lecture or theological discussions. The, the word of God on the topic of the millennium must be brought to bear to our hearts. It is supremely applicable and I believe that as we this morning progress through this question of why a millennium, why is it necessary, this is going to be for us far more than a theological debate or discussion. Because answering that question, why a millennium, is going to give you tremendous confidence that God is at work. And that questions that we have, like why is there evil in the world, or why doesn't God do something about all the wickedness all around us, all of those questions are going to be answered in full and with a resounding amen at the, the tremendous wisdom of God because he's a God who will never, ever let a single loose end go. Whether it's in your life or whether it's in all the empires and kingdoms of all of history, everything will be dealt with in full. Everything. Or maybe to put it this way, a little closer to home for us, if you believe Romans 8.28 for your own life, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, then you can equally believe that not only is God working out all things in your life for your good, but he's working out all things in history for his own glory 
and not one single solitary detail will be left undone. You ever watched a mediocre movie where they didn't answer like three questions at the end and the credits go up and you go, what was that? Not going to win an Oscar because we love completed stories. And the millennial kingdom is the completed story. It is that which primarily fulfills all of history. And so our time this morning, my hope is that this will heighten your anticipation of God's coming finale to this age and that it'll loosen your grip on any anxiety you have about this world. We have no need for anxiety in this world. So why is a millennial kingdom necessary? I'd like to give you this morning seven purposes of the millennial kingdom. And, and this is really the combined and cut down version, but we'll do seven. The first purpose of the millennial kingdom, Christ will redeem Adam's failure. Christ will redeem Adam's failure. Now you recall from last time that mankind was given what we call the central directive, a central task for which he was made. And we see this in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Adam, the first man, he was given the life purpose and the authority as the one made in the image of God, or as we pointed out last time, as the image of God, his representative on earth. Adam was given the task of ruling and subduing the perfect, Genesis one thirty one, very good creation. But Adam failed. The representative of God must keep the law of God. And Adam chose to rebel against God's law and to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden by God in the one singular prohibition given to mankind. And so God gave Adam the promised consequences of sin. Genesis 3, verse 17 Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now Adam would work and sweat to subdue the earth. And in the end, the earth would win. The earth would claim him. The earth would take him back, returning him to the dust in death. And because Adam failed, all of mankind then failed since Adam was acting as the representative of all who would come after him. Paul explained this theological truth in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what's the solution? Mankind needed a new representative. We needed a new representative. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul calls the Lord Jesus Christ the last Adam. 
And the last Adam will triumph where the first Adam was defeated. The last Adam will succeed where the first Adam failed. In fact, Jesus himself demonstrated this. At times, he repeated the activities of the first Adam only with success. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the last Adam succeeded. For example, Adam failed to withstand the temptation of Satan in the Garden of Eden as recorded in Genesis 3. Jesus was victorious over the temptation of Satan as recorded in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Adam's act of rebellion brought condemnation to all, Romans 5.12. Jesus' act of faithfulness to go all the way to the cross brought justification to all who would believe in him. Paul explained this in Romans 5.18 as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all, that's Adam, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, that's Christ. Adam's sin brought death, decay, sickness, tornadoes, hurricanes, famines, earthquakes, everything that makes our world difficult to live in. But when Jesus was on earth, he gave a little glimpse, he gave a short glance And what life on earth will be like when he's reigning. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He showed total dominion over nature by doing things like walking on water or multiplying food miraculously. And in the same way, Adam was appointed to rule on the earth. Not just theoretically, metaphorically over the earth, but on the earth. As the representative of God, Adam failed But Jesus will be successful in his reign on and over the earth. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus calls this time, coming time of his reign, the regeneration. This is the same Greek word used in Titus 3, 5 to speak of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Something brand new, a brand new era, a brand new time. He's speaking to his disciples. He says, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And listen, if if we could just say this in all love, this is one of the tremendous strengths of premillennialism. That the work in which Adam failed now succeeds in Christ. And to all who would say that Jesus is reigning over the earth right now, but it's a, it's a spiritual reign, it's an invisible reign that happens from heaven, there's a very difficult question that you must answer if you believe that. If Jesus is the last Adam, Romans 5 is clear about that, and if he's redeeming where Adam failed, why would Jesus reign spiritually and invisibly from heaven when the battleground to redeem mankind happens on earth? That's where it happens Adam didn't reign from heaven. He reigned on earth. From the geographically highest point on earth, the Garden of Eden. How do we know it was the geographically highest point? Because four rivers all flowed downhill from one spot, the Garden of Eden. Jesus will reign, as we'll see in coming messages, from the geographic highest point on earth, Jerusalem, the new Eden. Psalm 115, 16 says, The heavens are the heavens of Yahweh, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. If Jesus doesn't come to reign on earth, then there was never a successful reign of mankind on the earth, and the failure of the first Adam never gets redeemed. There's a second purpose for the millennial kingdom Christ will resolve all prophecy. 
Christ will resolve all prophecy. Now, we're going to be all over the Bible now for a bit, so as we often do in the topical message, it might be more useful for you to just note the references as we're going to go to, I don't want to scare you, several dozen other texts of Scripture. We'll go through them quickly. Many prophecies about Christ were fulfilled when He came the first time, but many were not. Many await a future fulfillment, and we get plenty of prophecies already fulfilled at His birth and at His ministry to give us confidence that all the rest will be fulfilled as well. Other major prophecies of Scripture await fulfillment. They can only be uniquely fulfilled in a mediatorial kingdom in which Christ is physically reigning on earth. I want to just give you a sample. This certainly isn't all of them, but I want to give you a taste of the prophecies which will be fulfilled at the coming of Christ and the setting up of His kingdom on earth. And I'm going to show you why these are important. One sample, the judgment of all the nations. The judgment of all the nations. Joel 3 Beginning in verse 1 and going through the first half of verse 2 says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. Now, someone might say, well, there doesn't have to be a millennial kingdom in order for Christ to judge all the nations. But that doesn't account for the continued judgment of the nations throughout the course of the kingdom. It's not just a one-time event. If I could put it this way, Christ will judge, as in decimate and destroy, and then Christ will judge, as in rule over and make decisions concerning the nations. How about this prophecy? The judgment of the coming Antichrist. The judgment of the coming Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2 8 says, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now, many amillennialists believe that Antichrist has already come. He came in the person of Emperor Nero during the time of Peter and Paul. But the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.18 that, quote, Antichrist is coming. And he wrote decades after the death of Nero. How about this prophecy? World peace with nations in unity. World peace with nations in unity. If the next thing to happen is simply that Christ returns and we jump instantly into the final state, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and so forth, there never will have been an era in which all the nations of the world dwell in unity while there's still sin in the world, although it's subdued. But Isaiah 2, 2-4 says that the unity of the nations living in peace will be because law goes out from Jerusalem, from the king. He will make rulings concerning the nations. The peace will come. Why? Because Christ will insist on it and he'll make it happen. It takes a millennial kingdom for that. World peace with nations in unity. How about a changed earthly environment? A changed earthly environment in the coming kingdom, we won't be in the completed era of the new earth yet, completely reconditioned, but there will be some significant changes to the earthly environment, and I'm I'm sure we'll refer to this repeatedly. This is one of the more fascinating aspects of the millennium to consider, but let me just give you a few samples. 
Isaiah 31, 35, rather, 1 and 2, indicates that the deserts, at least around Israel and likely around the world, are going to flourish and be watered and nourished. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? You know, the Sahara Desert is 10% bigger than it was 100 years ago. That's going to be reversed. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, will change what the typical petting zoo looks like. Because the animal kingdom will be changed to a kinder, friendlier version. The wolf dwelling with the lamb. The cow and the bear grazing together. The child leading lions around and toddlers playing with cobras. Just last year in India, an eight-year-old boy was playing with a cobra. And the cobra delivered a rare, what they call dry bite. Bit the kid, but delivered no venom. But he wouldn't let go. So the kid bit him back. And killed the snake. An eight-year-old defeated a cobra. That won't be an issue in the millennial kingdom. They will play together. Animals will be under the subjugation of Christ as was originally intended for Adam. Why did the animals show up when God told Adam to name all of them? Because the animals were in subjection to the king who was Adam. Now they'll be in subjection to the king who is Christ. Or how about this part of nature? Zechariah 14, 18 indicates that Any nation that refuses to go to Jerusalem to honor and worship Christ, no rain will fall on that nation. What does that mean? That just like when he was on earth, Christ will control the weather. How about this prophecy? Israel in the land promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Israel in the land promised in the Abrahamic covenant. I said land promised rather than promised land. To emphasize that our concept of the promised land is often vague and and general. But what I mean by the land promised is that Israel in all of history has never fully possessed the exact boundaries that God promised Abraham in Genesis 15. It's never happened. Genesis 15, 18 through 21 places the boundaries of true Israel from the Nile River in Egypt to the Euphrates River and today what is eastern Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. That's Israel. Now, those are just some samples, but what's key and what's important about all of those prophecies is that each one of those yet-to-be-fulfilled predictions are not random. They're meaningfully linked not to the final state of the new heavens and the new earth, but they're meaningfully linked to the messianic kingdom of Christ on earth. Look at them briefly again. The judgment of all the nations. Joel 3, 1 and 2, the judgment which comes from Messiah comes, quote, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and when Israel is regathered. That's millennial kingdom. The judgment of the coming Antichrist. The second Thessalonians 2, 8, and then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This is directly related to the coming of Christ to usurp Satan and his Antichrist. How about world peace with nations in unity? Not going to happen until the Prince of Peace is here. The world peace described in Isaiah 2 happens only when Christ is described as physically present in Jerusalem. How about the changed earthly environment? Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, indicating the deserts are flourishing. This happens in the context when nature sees, quote, the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God, in Isaiah 35, 4, and all is as it should be now because God has come personally. He has exacted his vengeance and is taking the earth back. 
Or Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, showing the changed animal kingdom. What's the context of that? If you know Isaiah 11, you know the context. This is immediately following Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, which describes the shoot and the branch of Jesse, the Messiah, who will reign with the spirit of wisdom. Where? On the earth. Zechariah 14, 18, which indicates Christ controlling the weather. When does that happen? When he's present on the earth. Israel in the land promised to the Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15, which outlines the true boundaries of Israel, God promised Abraham, to your seed I have given this land. What does that mean? Well, in Galatians 3.16, Paul points out, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. That doesn't nullify, it doesn't replace God's promises to Israel, but God's promises to Israel, including the land promise, occurs in connection with and in union to and completely interwoven with the coming of Messiah. All of those prophecies are connected to a kingdom yet to come that is not yet the final state. It's the third purpose of the millennium. Christ will realize Israel's new covenant promises. Christ will realize Israel's new covenant promises. By the way, these seven purposes are not in order of importance. They're in order of my favorites. So I I just have to tell you that. Christ will realize Israel's new covenant promises. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31 through verse 34, this is really the, the clearest outlining of God's promised new covenant with Israel, which we in the church are currently enjoying Partly, not completely. But remember that Jeremiah 31 has very important specifics. The covenant is with Israel. The church is not the new Israel. The covenant is with Israel. Gentiles only benefit because God has graciously allowed Gentiles to be extended salvation through Israel. And what we experience in this age is really just a taste of what's yet to come. Here's another specific. It is an unconditional covenant. It is an everlasting covenant that Israel has not yet experienced. They've not experienced it, and they won't experience it in this age. The current nation of Israel is not the promised nation. It's still an apostate nation that does not worship Messiah nationally. And we also see in Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant has the specific of including spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings like cleansing from sin, new hearts and minds, possession by God as his people, intimate knowledge of God. What does that sound like? We say that it sounds like the church age. Exactly, we're experiencing that part right now. But here's the key. The fulfilled covenant results in spiritual blessings. We're enjoying those now in the churches, those grafted into Israel, not becoming Israel, but grafted in. Spiritual blessings, but also material blessings, physical blessings, earthly blessings. They go with the new covenant. The new covenant does not promise the church that every time a person gets saved, God will grant them five acres of land in Kern County doesn't say that. But to Israel, material blessings are granted and it's part of the new covenant and it hasn't happened yet. Let me prove this to you. Jeremiah 32, 43 says that in the future, Israel will buy and sell land in tremendous prosperity. Ezekiel 34, beginning of verse 25 
Israel in the future will have no fear of wild beasts. The area all around Jerusalem is said to be a blessing. Rain will come at just the right time. The orchards will be plentiful. The fields will be full. They'll have no security problems, total safety. Now, why do I give you those two texts? Jeremiah 32, 43 and Ezekiel 34, 25 through 27 are key texts because all those material blessings are in the context of the new covenant. And they haven't happened yet. So there must be an era in which the new covenant is fully operational in Israel and they're receiving all the material blessings that go hand in hand with the new covenant. There's a fourth purpose for the millennium. Christ will rule where he was refused. Christ will rule where he was refused. It is offensive to me to have any sort of belief system, and it should be offensive to you as well, that says that Christ was humiliated, degraded, so wretchedly on this earth, but there will never be a time where he's vindicated here, where he's just invisibly reigning. Let me prove this to you. It was on this earth that Christ was refused in shame, and it will be on this earth that he will rule in glory. And we go all the way back thinking about mankind falling into sin in Genesis 3, God initiated his redemptive plan to bring a now sinful world in line with his original will. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the plan, a savior who will crush the head of Satan and redeem his people. Jesus will then be established as king over all the nations as promised in Psalm 2. Let me ask you a question. If as some suppose, Jesus is reigning invisibly, spiritually, over the whole earth, and we are in the kingdom age now. Would somebody please name one country on this earth that is organized around the submission to and worship of Christ? There isn't one. Not one single nation on earth bends the knee to Christ, and in fact, the governments of the world are the greatest enemies of Christ on this earth. There are Christians in many nations, but that's tenuous at best. No government on earth is in love with Christians. And most take any opportunity to oppress and suppress the exercise of the worship of the true and living God. The nations of the world are currently in a state of rebellion against God. This is why in Galatians 1.4, Paul calls this era, this present evil age. Doesn't sound like a millennium to me. Now, there is no doubt that even on this day and all throughout church history, the gospel has gone forth in spectacular and tremendous ways, not the least of which was seen in the great reformation of the 16th century, which saw the explosion of the understanding of the biblical gospel. But let me ask you this. Is the gospel slowly taking a foothold in the world as post-millennialists would expect? Will Christian nationalism prevail And eventually, will the church be the primary influence on earth before Christ returns? Logic says no, but we don't appeal to logic. We appeal to the Word of God. The Apostle John answers those questions, no. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. 
There's nothing in Scripture and certainly nothing in our experience that tells us that all the honor that's rightly due to Christ will be given to Him until He returns. Now, on this earth, Jesus was rejected, He was refused by even His own people, and He was symbolically refused by all the nations represented by Rome. So listen very carefully. If there is no millennial reign of Christ on earth, and if the next event in redemptive history is his return, judgments, and going immediately to the final state, then listen carefully. There will never be a time when the sinful earth which rejected him is now seeing him and honoring him and glorifying him to the level that he deserves. It never will have happened. But the millennium will answer that problem because in the coming kingdom for 1,000 years Jesus will receive the honor and the glory that was denied him when he came the first time. And we've read this before but think about this. When Jesus arrives to reign on the earth, Zechariah 14 16 decrees that all the nations shall go up from year to year to worship the king. This will happen 1,000 times. That's Christ getting what he is due on a sinful earth. Now, someone might ask, well, what about the fact that Jesus is glorified at this moment at the right hand of his Father? He is glorified. He is absolutely ruling over the earth. Yes, he is glorified. No, he is not ruling over the earth. Who knows that Jesus is glorified at this moment at the right hand of the Father? This is known only to the Christian who reads and believes his Bible. This isn't known to the world. This isn't common knowledge. And Jesus is not reigning where he was rejected. The world is openly defiant against God. The world as it is cannot be, it is not, the full and glorious manifestation of a kingdom of Christ on earth. Can you imagine out of the hundreds of nations on earth that after hundreds of years when there have been descendants from the survivors of the Great Tribulation and some of them decide we're not going to go worship the king, the king will not send rain on them. And if there's a weather forecast, uh, it won't go like this. Well, there's no rain in this country, this country, and this country. It'll go like this. This country, this country, and this country is refusing to worship Christ. And the rest of the world will go, ooh, don't do that. That's the honor and glory that's due to him. This is not, e- not difficult to understand. When Jesus is ruling on earth, everyone will know it. I don't know what's so hard to understand about that. Psalm 2, verse 9. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Both say that when Christ returns, he'll rule with a rod of iron. This characterizes how he'll defeat and, and crush all of his enemies and make the earth his footstool. But has that happened? Is Christ reigning now? Is the earth his footstool now? To all who believe that Christ is reigning now, Hebrews 10, 12 and 13 delivers a crushing blow to that thought that Christ is reigning now. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. We all agree on that. Next word. Waiting for that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. And the writer of Hebrews is just quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. 
And Psalm 110 goes on to describe what the day of Christ's enemies being a footstool for his feet actually looks like. Verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 110, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Have dominion in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power, in the splendor of holiness from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youthfulness will be yours. From just those two verses, when Christ is reigning, it'll be from Zion, from Jerusalem, It'll be dominion in the midst of his enemies, not invisibly in heaven somewhere far above them, and his glory will be observable by all the world. The dew of your youthfulness. What does that mean? All the world will see Jesus Christ, and he will be the toughest, strongest, most incredible, manly man that has ever been seen. The earth that rejected Christ must vindicate him by witnessing his return and his righteous rule. Because listen, Christ is not going to return invisibly. He comes as a conquering warrior. Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sits on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and rules invisibly. No, it doesn't say that. He judges and wages war. Who's ever heard of invisible war? And he proves that he is faithful and true. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, he described his return. I don't know how he could be clearer. He says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. I spent a lot of my life in central Texas. And at certain times in June, July, and August, you can go outside if you have the courage and you can see these clouds that are dark green. And they come rolling in and you see these little wisps come down trying to be tornadoes. And then if you look up high enough, especially as it it gets dark, you can see one end of the sky light up with lightning and it just crawls across the sky. And you see lightning bolts that happen going, going horizontally. And they happen for five, six, and seven seconds. It is terrifying and awe inspiring. Jesus said, it won't be invisible when I come. Everybody will see it. And then we came to California and there's one little raindrop and we hear people screaming. <laughs> you've not seen a storm since you've, until you've been in central Texas. He's not going to return invisibly. And once he has returned, he will be the supreme judge among all the peoples of the earth. Isaiah 2, 4, he will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. Why is this important? This indicates the presence of disagreement. And Christ will be the judge fulfilling his prophesied role. This is not happening now and it won't need to happen in the eternal state that's sinless and completely made up of glorified, perfected people. Christ is currently glorified at the right hand of God. Agreed, but he's waiting for the time when his enemies are to be made his footstool, when he has dominion in the midst of his enemies and when he's here in observable glory. Christ will rule where he was refused. Now that might bring up a question you might ask, not selfishly, just curiously, what about us? We're part of the millennium. Are we part of the purposes of the millennium? Yes, we are. Here's a fifth purpose, very similar to the fourth one, but pertaining to you. The fifth purpose is Christ will raise saints where they were rejected. Christ will raise saints where they were rejected. 
He'll elevate them. He'll vindicate them. The history of the Jews and the history of the church has been awash in blood. There's never really been a safe land on earth for any lengthy period of time for the people of God. Israel had some glory years, really only about 80 years under David and Solomon, and that's it. Even the United States of America, the country that we love and we're thankful for, founded on the principle of being able to worship God freely, the United States has rejected those roots. We're a pagan nation that murders babies, mutilates children, and worships everything that God hates. During the Great Tribulation, many will come to saving faith and many will lose their lives for the faith. It'll be seven years of the greatest spread of the gospel in history. Jesus even said this in Matthew 24, 14. He said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And it will be the time of the greatest persecution of the saints in all of history. Such that anyone who won't worship Antichrist can't participate in the global economy and is either killed or must run because of persecution. Revelation 12 and 13 makes this abundantly clear. I bring this up to tell you that if the end times consists of all Christians going to heaven, then suddenly there's a new heavens, new earth, then there's never an intermediate kingdom in which Christians are reigning and where they're vindicated. But Scripture is very clear that there must be a time when the tables are turned. And follow our biblical logic here. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 presents a, a, a very familiar prophetic view of the presentation of the earth as a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is clearly an earthly reign that is, that is total, that is complete. Daniel 7 goes on prophetically to speak of a horn, Antichrist, who will wage war with saints and overpower them during the Great Tribulation. This has been happening all throughout history one way or another, but it'll reach its high point then. But Daniel 7 makes certain to show that the tables get turned. Daniel 7, 18, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Daniel seven twenty one and 22, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overcoming them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And just in case Daniel isn't utterly clear, in verse 27 of Daniel 7, then the reign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. There must be a time when the saints are vindicated. At the end of his letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus makes a declaration in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. 
when Christ returns and Satan is confined. Revelation 20, verse 4 and verse 6 says that the persecuted saints will reign with Christ for a thousand years. We get this very clearly from Jesus himself. In his parable of the ten minas, which is a unit of money, Jesus makes the point that his faithful on this earth while he's gone will be rewarded with authority, with rule over cities, that the reward of the saints is expressed in terms of rule and authority under Christ himself. The coming kingdom also includes vindication for the saints. We will be raised up where we were rejected previously. I don't know, for example, if the city of Los Angeles or the city of San Francisco will still be on the map when Christ returns. That wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't. But if it is, can you imagine the turnaround when perfected, glorified saints are now ruling? It'll be a glorious place to go. Here's a sixth purpose. Christ will renew the Davidic kingdom. Christ will renew the Davidic kingdom. And we're going to return to this in other messages because this is an epic part of the story of the millennium. But just a quick little reminder here. God made a covenant with King David, one that we'll examine in greater detail later on. God told David in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13 that he would raise up from David's seed, from his descendants, a king whose throne and kingdom would be established forever. Small problem. Israel fell. And even the exiles who returned would never again see a Davidic king on the throne. For that matter, they would never see an official king on the throne. There were some king-like rulers, um, some of them even high priests, during the time between the Testaments, but there was never a God-crowned king in the line of David. It never happened. And so from a human standpoint, it would seem impossible that God's covenant with David could ever see the light of day. But the Old Testament is full of assurance from God that even from the ruins of a once great kingdom, David's throne will be occupied once again. Through the prophet Amos, God declares that even as he severely disciplines Israel, even as their eyes are blinded right now spiritually and judges the rebel among, rebels among them, after that time has passed, Amos 9 verse 11 declares, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the ancient days, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh, who does this. Did you notice this? The, the ruins of the kingdom of David will be restored and they will, quote, possess all the nations who are called by my name. There's never been a day when all the nations of the earth claim to belong to God. And that day only happens when the fallen Davidic kingdom is restored. This was the great promise given by the angel visiting Mary who indicated that Christ would bring back the Davidic kingdom in Luke 1, 31 through 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. A little side note here, and I won't take a lot of time on this today, but you ever wonder what David himself will be doing during the millennial kingdom? He'll be resurrected. He'll be here. Christ will be king over all, but David will be resurrected. 
Is he going to be running a local bowling alley in New Jersey? Is that what David's going to be doing? Not likely. Not likely. Ezekiel 37, 24, and 25 says, My servant David will be king over them, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Is this actually David serving as prince or king of Israel on behalf of King Messiah? It seems highly probable. We're going to get into that into a different message, but the evidence is strong that David himself will serve under Christ. Where else would he be? Now, I saved this one for last for a reason. The first six purposes are very theological. They're very technical. But if I could put it this way, this last purpose is personal because it involves the honor of God It involves the reputation of God. It involves the renown and fame of God. It involves the question, is God truly all-powerful? So just to review the seven purposes of the millennial kingdom, Christ will redeem Adam's failure. Christ will resolve all prophecy. Christ will realize Israel's new covenant promises. Christ will rule where he was refused. Christ will reign where will raise saints where they were rejected. Christ will renew the Davidic kingdom. And here's the seventh purpose, and it's personal. Christ will reestablish God's earthly rule. Christ will reestablish God's earthly rule. Now you may say it feels like we've covered that already. No, we're going to be specific about one particular element here. God's plan has been to go through a process of redemption and restoration over many thousands of years, adding to the company of worshipers every generation. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and brought sin to humanity, they not only deserted God in that moment, something very key happened. They forfeited authority over the earth to Satan. At the temptation of Jesus by Satan, as recorded in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Satan took Jesus, quote, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, Matthew 4, 8. And he offered to Jesus in Luke 4, verse 6, he said, quote, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, you know that Jesus successfully fended off this spiritual attack, but did you know this? Jesus never denied that the kingdoms of this world belong to Satan. He never denied it. And ever since that time, Satan has functioned, practically speaking, as the authority in the world. Jesus called Satan in John 12, John 14, John 16, the ruler of this world. Paul called Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. Paul also called Satan in Ephesians 2, verse 2, the ruler of the power of the air. More, more traditional English translations say the prince of the power of the air. Peter affirmed that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. The Apostle John, very blunt, he wrote in 1 John five nineteen, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Our amillennial brethren who believe that Christ is reigning spiritually now and that that Satan has already been bound. They have a very steep hermeneutic hill to climb. It's a cliff to prove that position. The, The most common view 
in the camp of Satan already being bound is that Satan is only bound specifically in his ability to deceive the nations. And this view is based on the major passage concerning the binding of Satan, Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. One theologian in the camp of those who believe that Satan has already been bound and that we're in the, the kingdom now, he explains it like this, quote, Revelation 21 through 3 says that a mighty angel from God binds the devil for a thousand years. Specifically, verse 3 relates that he is bound from deceiving the nations during this period. Something happens to Satan's ability to keep the nations of earth blinded from seeing who God is and what his gospel means for them. As a result of Christ's finished work in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, in ascending to the Father, and in being crowned on the throne of glory, Satan lost his power to deceive the untold millions of pagans whom he formerly kept blinded to God's saving truth. You notice the assertion, past tense, Satan lost his power to deceive the untold millions of pagans. This particular writer, and this is a very common view, asserts that, that Jesus bound Satan by his death and resurrection. Quote, that when Jesus purged all of our sins on Calvary, something happened to Satan. The evil one lost his authority to keep people back from God. He was bound by what Jesus did. Now, clearly, Satan was defeated at the cross in the sense of a person's record of debt against God can now be fully erased and paid for by Christ. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 make it very clear the triumph of Christ over the power of Satan. And to be fair, the view that Satan was bound at the cross isn't the only version of the view that Satan is currently bound. Another variation includes Satan being bound in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, the year that some feel is the primary fulfillment of the book of Revelation. But there's two questions we must answer to deal with this. First, is Satan's spiritual defeat at the cross the same thing as his binding in Revelation 20 where he can't deceive the nations? And second, does Satan's binding either at the cross or A.D. 70, whichever one you, you might take, does that line up with other clear New Testament passages? First question, is Satan's spiritual defeat at the cross the same thing as his binding in Revelation 20? To help answer that question, it's important to understand that this view of Satan currently being bound is accompanied by a very specific view of the book of Revelation. Listen to the same author I cited a moment ago in what, from my reading, is a pretty typical assessment of the book of Revelation. Quote, Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible that speaks of the millennium. We've already talked about that. Clearly not true. He assumes that the millennium is symbolic, and this is a phrase you can read with dozens of theologians saying, quote, Therefore, we should understand what Revelation 20, a highly symbolic book, says about the millennium. It is true that the book of Revelation contains a lot of symbolism. It does not mean we have permission to make everything symbolic. 
And since the amillennialist doesn't believe in the time period between the church age and the final state, then Satan's binding in Revelation 20 must already be happening or else the theological system falls apart. But this is a, a conflating, a blending, a melting together of two separate theological truths. Yes, Colossians 2.15 says that at the cross, Christ, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is satanic and demonic power. But just look at the context and it tells you what that means. The previous verse says at the cross, Christ canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. In other words, Satan, the accuser, can no longer accuse you successfully. That's how he's defeated at the cross. The Christian sin is paid for by by Christ, and in that sense, Satan's power is completely disarmed. He can't say one thing to God that would convince God to unsave you. But that spiritual reality for which we rejoice is very different than Satan's current rule in the world. It's the second question. Does Satan being bound either at the cross or in AD 70 to not be able to deceive the lost line up with other clear New Testament passages? The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, The God of this age has, present tense, blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And you might say, well, then how are the lost saved? Well, the lost are saved only because of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that works in the lost. The, the, the Holy Spirit is greater than Satan. John 3, 8, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If Satan was bound at the cross... No one told Paul because he wrote that Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers some 30 years after the cross. Or how about John? John wrote in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If Satan was bound even in 70 AD, then no one told John because he wrote that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one at the earliest 15 years later and and perhaps even as late as 25 years after that. It isn't rational to say with great confidence that the gospel is going forth unimpeded in the world. Yes, the gospel is going forth, but even Paul said in Ephesians 6 that the gospel goes forth in the context of a massive spiritual battle. If Satan is bound, who are we fighting? If Satan is bound, why do we have to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace to dig in? If Satan is bound, why do we need the sword of the Spirit? If Satan is bound, why do we need the shield of faith? If Satan is bound, why do we need the the breastplate of righteousness? Why do we need all that? Because he's not bound. He's not in the abyss. Trust me, you'll know it when he is. Satan's dominion over the world continues. And so Christ's return is the linchpin. It's the prerequisite for the defeat of Satan in the world. Now, given that much more than 1,000 years has passed since the cross, the amillennialist is forced to make the number 1,000 symbolic. As one theologian explained, why then does Revelation use the expression of 1,000 years? In terms of biblical numbers, 10 represents fullness. And a thousand is ten times ten times ten. Hence, fullness times fullness times fullness. 
A five-year-old would tell you that's idiocy. That's not Bible study. That's throwing a dart at a wall with a blindfold on. And since in that system, Satan has already been bound, listen carefully, at the cross. And what do you do with Revelation 27 and 8 when Satan is released to deceive the nations? At the end of this symbolic time of 1,000 years that really isn't 1,000 years, what do you do with that? Because if you hold that as this particular theologian does, and it represents the view well, quote, as a result of Christ's finished work in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, in ascending to the Father, and being crowned on the throne of glory, Satan lost his power to deceive. How can you possibly say that Satan then is going to regain his power to deceive? You know what that means? The cross was insufficient. The cross wasn't enough. So they backed themselves into a corner and they need to back out because it's offensive. So how do you take this? You take it the way Christians have been since about 95 AD. You read Revelation 20 and take it at face value. It says a great angel will come down from heaven. What does that mean? It means a great angel will come down from heaven. And imprison Satan for a thousand years in an abyss. What does that mean? He's going to imprison Satan for a thousand years in an abyss. And what will the result be? That he won't deceive the nations any longer. What's that going to be like? You'll know it when it happens. There's no mention or even hint that that's related to the cross. What it is related to is that Satan has been dethroned because Christ has come. That's the victory Revelation 11:15 When the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world that is Satan has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever the millennium is the overthrow of Satan in full visibility of the whole world not some invisible theological debate it is the removal of the crowns of the earth from the head of Satan and putting them on the one that Revelation 19 says on his head are many crowns, many diadems, all the crowns of all the earth snatched out of the hand of Satan and taken for the one who rightly rules. The millennium is the public defeat of Satan and all that he stands for. It must happen. So for all of your questions, like why is there evil in the world? Why doesn't God do something about the wickedness that's all around us? The millennium answers all of those questions because we serve a God who will never, ever, 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 ever let one single loose end go undealt with. Not one. My prayer is that your faith would drink deeply from this refreshing water of the millennium. It's what gives us hope to be spiritually hydrated and reinvigorated by the coming king and his kingdom. This is why one-third of our Bible is devoted to this subject. One-third. Our Father, we pray that you would hydrate us spiritually with this great hope. We're meeting in this wonderful facility that you've given us. 
but it's surrounded by a fence, a security gate, men who are tasked with protecting us because sin and danger and degradation is literally right outside our gates. We live in a world that's dangerous. We live in a world that is disgusting in its sin, is upside down in everything that's good, that calls evil good and calls good evil. And so we would join with the Apostle John and and cry out to you, come, Lord Jesus, and how different our world will be. And that gives us such hope now for those who are close to going home, coming around the bend on the last lap of life, how much joy and how much hope we have for those who are younger and have much to run in the race of faith yet, how much hope they have each year and each decade to look ahead to a day when Christ will defeat all of his enemies. The saints will reign in glory with him. Satan will be bound Antichrist, a a memory of the past. And all the nations of the world in subjection to the judge and king and savior. We cannot say this enough, but thank you. Thank you for revealing the future to us that we might have confidence that as we ask questions like, why is there evil in the world? Or why doesn't God do something about the wickedness all around us? We have the answer and it is, he will. He will do something. May we wait patiently. May we wait eagerly. May we wait with anticipation all to the glory of our coming King in whose name we pray. Amen.